0: And and again, take a look at the very specific account that has to do with Joseph, with God's call upon his life, his faithfulness to that call, at tremendous cost to himself, how God used him in human history. That is a wonderful way to study these chapters. But that is uh, in actually the smaller picture of what's happening here in this section of Genesis. And God lets us know that with the first uh, six words of verse two this is the history of jacob this whole section that has to do with joseph has to do with joseph in a secondary way an important way but it has to do supremely with joseph and god's plan for the world through the three great patriarchs of of jewish history abraham isaac and jacob and so the plans that god has for that lineage Uh, to bless the whole world through that bloodline and uh, the greatest blessing being our Savior, the Messiah Jesus, coming into the world uh, in order to forgive us for our sins and give us the possibility of relationship with God and and everlasting life and and those blessings. And so here we begin in verse 37, uh, a period uh, uh, that's going to cover uh really as we as we look at well not all the way through the rest of the chapter, but until Joseph is reunited with his father, it'll be a period of twenty-two years. And uh and what it's going to tell us is Joseph is sold into slavery, then becomes the second most powerful man in the world. What it explains for us in the big picture of Jacob is this: how in the world did Jacob his sons and the nation of Israel ever end up in Egypt. And why in the world did they ever end up in Egypt? Why would God do that when all the promises were associated to them at being in Canaan and receiving the land of Canaan? Now, you remember way back in chapter 15 of Genesis that God had already revealed to Abraham that one day his descendants would spend 400 years in a foreign land and that he would then bring them out of that foreign land back into the uh, land of Canaan. There are three principal reasons for God taking this whole bloodline out of uh, Canaan, out of the pagan world, taking them into Egypt for a time. And uh, one of the reasons was to wait for the iniquity of the Amorites to become completed. So God takes the children of Israel and he takes them into Egypt Because the Amorites, God is going to displace all of these uh, pagan uh, tribes that are in the land at that time. Not just because they're pagan, but because the greatness of their wickedness. But there was one group that was less wicked than the rest of them by the name of the Amorites. But God knew that over a period of time, they will become equally wicked as the rest of of the nations and they would be then require God to rise up from his throne in judgment if he's a righteous God at all and then judge them for their iniquity but they would not become that wicked for a period of 400 years so God did not want them judged he did not want them displaced until uh, their sin required it of him and so he gives the Amorites about 400 years of of uh, kind of extra time while that's happening. A second reason that he takes them into Egypt was to protect them. Uh, They are, at this particular point in time, in in Genesis chapter 37, uh, Jacob and his sons and his sons' sons and descendants number about 70 males. They are are hardly a nation. Uh, They are hardly a good-sized tribe at this time. They are very simply a family. And it would be very, very easy for any one of the very violent uh, tribes and nations in Canaan at that time to just rise up one day and in 24 to 48 hours slaughter the entire group. It wasn't unheard of. A very, very violent time in the Middle East. (laughs) Okay. All right. You finished the sentence. On, on that. It's kind of been like that, hasn't it? But now, God, while they're so weak and so vulnerable numerically, He takes them and He puts them into the womb of of Egypt, so to speak, to protect them. A third reason that He takes them into Egypt is in order to develop them. Once again, to develop them from being a fairly good-sized family to becoming a nation. If If He hands Canaan over to them right now, and there' 70 males, plus their wives and their children. they can't even fill a village. Uh, they, can't, they can't dominate that land. they can't control that land. They can't even handle the wild animals in that land, let alone the sinful nations that are around them. So God takes them into egypt when he does it a little later in genesis they number about seventy people when they go in they go into egypt as a family when they come out four hundred years later they're truly a nation they're now the nation of israel the descendants of israel that is jacob and by the time that four hundred years goes by as we'll see they'll number um... Uh, six hundred thousand males and uh... Probably, if you put the males together, the wives, the children and all, numbering somewhere between, you know, two and three million people. Now they have a population base to do what God has planned for them there in Egypt. Now you'd think taking them into Egypt would be a crazy thing to do if you take them into Egypt aren't isn't the Egyptians gonna you know wipe them out aren't they more you know hostile won't the Egyptians absorb them into their population and the Hebrews will lose their distinctive bloodline in the midst of the Egyptians not not among the Egyptians of those days the Egyptians in those days I mean they were the people <laughs> and they knew it uh, and so in terms of uh, education in terms of prosperity in terms of culture in terms of of uh, entertainment in terms of just uh, you know moving forward in a lot of ways that it was happening in Egypt and they were very proud of that and if you weren't an, it was kinda of like Texas if you weren't an Egyptian you were nobody and uh, and so the, you could take and put these Hebrews easily into Egypt and the Egypt's Egyptians at that time so proud and, and separated from the other peoples they would never marry into it into an immigrant population into a foreign population wouldn't just wouldn't happen so it was a very safe place culturally at the time to place his, his people into it so that they wouldn't be absorbed by the surrounding nations and so uh... here is the story now it goes over to joseph because now that god's going to tell us we tells us why he wanted to take them into egypt now he's going to tell us how He got there and he uses joseph now to do that joseph being seventeen years old and it's important in that verse to uh... recognize his age there it's going to help us date some uh, other events in his life and to help us to know how long he was in certain circumstances in his life He's 17 years old at this time and he was feeding the flock with his brothers And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha His brother, his father's wives and so they're his half brothers And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father So he comes to his dad and he, he he tells Dad, these guys are just doing a lousy job out here in terms of herding the flock and taking care of, of the family, uh, you know, animals. And, and the family depended upon these animals and these herds for their very survival. It's how they lived and, uh, and, and maintained their survival. I have, listened. I can't tell you how many times through the years where Joseph is uh... painted as some kind of a snitch or a rat or something like this at this point in time uh, i just want to say anybody that goes that place on things just say Read the rest of his life, and if you come within 10 miles of it, you come and give me that snitch and rat routine, and, uh, and, and maybe we'll talk a little bit uh, here on, on things. So to call him a snitch or a rat on his family or something, I just think, I mean, what are we talking about, gangs? Are we talking about high school cliques? Or, or you know, I mean, it's just to think in totally carnal uh, terms. His brothers are doing wrong. They are negligent in the handling of the family flocks. And because they are being negligent in that, they are endangering the survival and the prosperity of the family. That was their main source of of income. So Joseph just rightly goes to his father and informs his father of what the head of anything needs to know about what it is that he's over. And that is, you've put this under people that are not being responsible in handling it the way that I know you would want to to handle that thing and so he's just being faithful to his father he's doing what's right doing what's best for the family uh, here in fact I I don't doubt that it is very likely that his father demanded this of him uh, wanted a report from him related to how things were going out there to give you some idea of how this is not a wrong thing in Joseph's life later in the law of Moses uh, God will put a protection right in, within the law that is, you know, makes Joseph shine in a very, very good light here when he would, uh, in the law of Moses, declare that a silence in the face of something that puts other people at risk is forbidden. You can't keep silent in a situation that is going to be detrimental to other people. Leviticus chapter 5 verse 1, if a, a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. And so this is not a character flaw in Joseph uh, at all. In fact, it's a mark of his integrity. But godly integrity can get you in a lot of trouble uh... when you are in a environment that lacks integrity and they're not going to be happy about uh... what he does here for the good of the family now israel that is jacob uh... he loved joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and so jacob loved joseph more than all of his other sons and uh... uh probably because Joseph was the son of his beloved, the, the wife that he loved, and the woman that he loved in all of life, uh, and that was Rachel, and so that's the only son that, that he has, uh, or that's the son that he has by her, uh, the oldest son by her and all, and so he loves him more than the others. As we're going to see the character of these other 11 brothers kind of unfold, we're going to see... Uh, that it was probably pretty easy for Jacob to love uh, Joseph more than the others just because he was a he was a very very good young man he was a very godly uh, young man didn't create any problems for his father or, or anything and, and, and it's very easy uh, you know when you've got a child who doesn't create any problems for you and everyone else is creating problems for you it can be easier to love the, the less uh, you know problem child but no parent I, I don't think should love one child more than another, and if you do, you certainly shouldn't, you know, you know make it broadly known, which is what he's going to do here in, in just a moment. And Jacob should have known that more than anyone else, because when he was growing up, his, his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac loved Esau best, Rebecca loved Jacob best and ended up tearing the whole family apart. So he's committing the same sin now by having favorites among the children and not only having favorites but making it very, very well known that Joseph is his favorite. Now notice is an expression of how much uh, he liked Joseph more than anyone else. Uh, he also made him a tunic or a robe or, or, or a coat of many colors now there's some you know disagreement a little bit in terms of the Hebrew and it's a legitimate uh, kind of different views related to it Um, some people like this uh, translation here where it's spoken of as a coat or a tunic of many colors could very well that uh, that jacob gave him that a very brightly colored different colors and stripes and everything or patchwork uh, you know kind of coat like nobody else had Uh, it also can mean a coat with large sleeves in it and there are reasons for all of that that i don't want to get into tonight but what what we can know about the coat is that it distinguished him from everyone else. And it was an outward physical expression of the fact that dad likes this guy the most. This is dad's uh, favorite. And so uh, that's, that's the coat. And, and uh, you know, m- maybe Joseph shouldn't have worn it, but it's from dad, so, so he, he did. Now, th- now, that's not the wisest thing for a parent to do, is it? Number one, have a favorite and just one out of the 12 and, and then you give them a real bright coat to wear just to let everyone know that. You just shouldn't do that. Uh, if you've got 12 sons, you either buy 12 brightly colored coats or you don't buy any brightly colored coats, uh, coats especially when the, 11, the other 11 will think nothing of killing one of their brothers uh, in order to kind of even things out. Now, the effect that all of this had upon the brothers, we're told in verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, what they probably recognized is that in in giving him this coat, even though uh, Joseph is very far down in terms of being the oldest in the family and the rightful heir, uh... you know to get the birthright and, and the blessing related to the family to ultimately become the head of the family when they're looking at dad dealing with him in this way they're thinking he's jumped up to the top of the list he's going to become the heir of the family and uh, there were quite a few brothers between him in terms of being older so uh, nobody likes this very much just not just on a favoritism uh... kind of basis but also in terms of what they want the place they want to have in their family, the inheritance they 're going to get from Dad and all this this kind of of things, so they hated him, and, and believe me, they did, and uh, nobody wanted uh, to speak peaceably uh, to him. Uh, at, at all, and, and so anytime he tried to get a conversation with one of them, remember he's 17, he's not like 40 and able to process this, or, or you know 30 or something like that, they, they just really gave him a hard time. Now Joseph, as if things couldn't be worse, had a dream and uh, and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more i mean how could you hate him more than they did but they did and here's why he said to them please hear this dream that i have dreamed and he said there we were binding sheaves sheaves of wheat in the field and it's going to be very interesting cuz this this having to do with wheat cuz ultimately wheat's going to play a big a big part in this this picture a few chapters down the road but here we are. We're binding up the sheaves of wheat in the field. And then behold, all of a sudden, as I'm watching this dream, my sheaf, it arises up and it stood upright. And indeed, all of your sheaves stood all around and they bowed down to my sheaf. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> so he, he tells them uh, the, the dream uh, uh, here. And. Uh, and so the reaction, I mean, they understood exactly what it is that, that this dream meant. And, is, and it, what it meant is that he was going to become the preeminent above all of the brothers. And his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his dreams. Words And so uh, the dream clearly communicated he would become the prominent son uh, in, in the future and, and all, and they hated him for this. Now Joseph, uh, again, I, I hear people talk about Joseph as if, you know, he's showing off and communicating these dreams and all of that. Listen, he's 17 years old. And uh, and he's 17 years old in what is a family culture that's very sheltered and and all, and so he's not like kids are today, you know, 11 going on uh, 27 kind of thing. He's just excited that God has spoken to him. He's excited that God has given him a dream about his life he's given him a revelation about uh, his life so he's excited about hearing God's voice and I think he Joseph is utterly without guile in all of this I think once we you get to know his character here a little bit I think that if if God gave that dream to any one of his other brothers and they stood up and they declared that to him he wouldn't be threatened by it at all he would be as happy for them as he expected them to be for him in terms of what God was communicating to him so he doesn't have any jealousy he doesn't have any envy but one thing we can learn from this is that sometimes God can give us dreams and he can give us visions that might just be for us they might just be for us we assume when God gives us a dream and a vision especially when it looks pretty favorable for us that you know everybody else ought to know about that too on things And, uh, but I don't think he's being negligent in any way here and all. He's just excited about that. And God knew, he knows what's coming in Joseph's life. Some really, really hard things are coming. And he knew, God knows what he's called Joseph to do. And he knows that Joseph's going to need a couple of very direct, powerful communications from heaven to keep him encouraged in the midst of what he's about to face there and god gives it to him it's interesting i was reading recently um uh, paul's letters uh, to the church at corinth and uh you know they're dealing poorly with paul and the whole thing and just treating him terrible and everything and he says you know i i'll I'll turn to boasting, you know, in kind of thing. And he starts to talk about the vision that he had, that God had given him of heaven and the things that he had heard, even and it was 14 years earlier. He had sat on that revelation that God had given to him for 14 years without letting anybody know until the time was right by the Holy Spirit to, to use it. And, uh, but Joseph comes and he, he just lets uh, everybody know about it I don't fault him for that and uh, then he has another dream and verse 9 and he dreams still another dream and he told it to his brothers so I mean this guy is like either a little thick or he is really without guile and he is not thick he is one sharp kid but he's a kid and, uh, and a sweet kid at that And he dreamed, and he he told the dream, the second one, to his brothers, and he said, look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. It's not only you, but mom and dad are going to bow down to me. I'm going to become the preeminent person for a time uh, in, in our family. And so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him because of this dream, and his, but his father kept the matter in mind. And he looked, he's, got a, he's got a pretty special kid, and I think he knows it. He also knows, based on his own life, that God is not a, averse to t- skipping the whole birth order, in his divine plan in the world, because that had happened in his life. So it wouldn't surprise him that, that God would do that with Joseph. But here he's had this tremendous dream, and it kind of seems like Dad has to step in and kind of humble him a little bit. You know, is this really going to... But he, he understands that, uh, you know, this is a very, very real uh, possibility. And his brothers, so they envied him, kept the matter, and, and he kept the matter in mind now this is kind of a turning point in the whole thing because for Joseph right now from verses 1 through verse 11 it's all fun it's fun to get dreams from God it's fun to get vision from God concerning how he's going to use our lives Um, it's fun to have that kind of revelation from him and and it's wonderful and it's an encouragement to our faith but once God gives us that revelation by whatever means he decides to do that uh, then the hard part starts and the hard part the easy part is getting the revelation the hard part now is being prepared for the place that God is going to put us into and so God gives Joseph these dreams visions for his life He knows he's going to need them for what's coming right around the corner uh, in in his life because he's heading now into a 13-year period of the development of his character before these dreams uh, come to pass. There is something way, way harder than the preparation that God invests in our life no matter how hard it gets, and it gets really hard for Joseph, And when you look at how God prepares His character to ultimately become the second most powerful man in the world and to keep His head screwed on straight when that happens, there is something harder than the preparation of our character for that position. And the harder thing is for us to be elevated into a position and not have the character to handle it well that is the harder thing and remember that for those of you where God has given you vision you feel like he's given you a sense of his calling upon your life and you think this is so hard I can't believe how he's stretching me I can't believe it just can't get any harder than this one day you will be very thankful for how hard he stretched and pulled you and the preparation process The worst thing is to get in that place and go, I don't know what to do. I'm completely overwhelmed with this. I don't have the character or the depth to handle what He's put me in the middle of. And God never, ever puts us in the middle of a situation that He has not prepared us to be successful for in the middle of. But it can be really, really hard. The other thing I want to say too about that whole issue, the time of preparation, it's going to be 13 years. 13, he's heading into a 13-year trial. I don't like to use 13 years and trial all in the same sentence. That's a really long time. Three weeks, six weeks. I mean, if, he's going to have, if you're going to do something really big in your life, you know, six weeks of preparation. 13 years? Wow! And God can do that. And don't give up on the dreams and the visions that God has given you for your life, and years have gone by, and you wonder about, and all of this. I mean, that thing can turn in a night, and you're right in the middle of what He promised, promised you. But it can be years in the preparation. God doesn't have a watch. There's not even a calendar in, in heaven on things. And, and so He's very patient about how He works in these things. And so now the preparation begins. And then Joseph, uh, then his brothers went to feed his father's flock in Shechem, which is about 50 miles away from Hebron. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And so he said, Here I am. And so maybe a little too much time has gone by, Uh, They've been away, no word back on how everything's going, so he sends Joseph to make sure everything is uh, going to be okay and make the 50-mile journey and then he said to him please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me and so he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem now a certain man found him while he was in Shechem and there he was wandering in the field looking for his brothers and the man asked him saying what are you seeking and he said I'm seeking my brothers Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They've departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan, which was another 15 miles uh, away. And so Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them in Dothan. Now, when they saw him from afar off, so they're tending the flock, and they look out and they can see him from a great distance. Why do you think they know it's him from a great distance? That colorful old coat, boy, you know, it's just just as bright as can be. And uh, so here he comes. They see him coming now. And uh, as they see him coming near, this is what they do. They conspired against him to kill him. They weren't were going to punch him out or, you know, put him in a headlock or something like that, you know. They're going to kill him. They want to kill him. And the reason they want to kill him, very, very interesting here in verse 19. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. They're going to kill him because of his dreams. We know how to put an end to his dreams. And, and you can tell as they talk about him being the dreamer. They won't call him by name. This, this, these two dreams that he had really, really bothered them. And so here the dreamer is coming. That was the sore spot. And come therefore and let us now kill him. And cast him into some pit, and then we'll say some wild beast has devoured him, and then we shall see what becomes of his dreams. And uh, so, this is how they're going to, you know, they're planning his death as he's just approaching, 17 years old, got a nice coat, and uh, just coming to see the big brothers and, and everything. But Reuben, who was the oldest brother, when he heard, this kind of talk going on he delivered Joseph out of their hands and said let's not uh, kill him and so Joseph steps in now and uh, and and he he delivers Joseph from what would have been a certain death upon him just arriving to be with with his brothers and uh, so he proposes that that they would be uh, uh, um, let us not kill him. And Reuben then said, This is what he proposes, verse 22 Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand on him. Let's not kill him. Let's throw him in a pit and leave him there kind of to die. And then, but in his heart, uh, he, he said this to spare his life in order that he might come back later after they leave him in the pit to die and pull him out of it and then deliver him back to his his dad so uh, Reuben is is the good guy in this situation and and he's trying to protect uh, the his his brother and so it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers the first thing they do they can't wait to get him out of that coat that they stripped him of his tunic the tunic of many colors that was on him and they took him and they cast him into a pit and the pit was empty there was no water in it and so it was a, a an empty kind of cistern for holding water they throw him inside of that now we might think that Joseph just kinda gets passive thrown in there and he just passively accepts it but later on In chapter 42, verse 21, when the brothers, because of a guilty conscience, begin to recount this whole thing, they talk about how Joseph, as they threw him in the pit, he began to... Uh, call out and cry for mercy that they w- wouldn't do this to him. It was the kind of thing, I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe that you would do this to any human being. I can't believe you would do this to your brother. And he's pleading for them to have mercy upon him and, and upon his, his life. And so they throw him down uh, into the pit and they sat down to eat a meal. Probably some uh, Reuben sandwiches. It's a little Bible humor for you. Everybody awake now? Okay. All right. No, you like that. Don't tell me you didn't like that. So they sat down to eat. None None of this affects their appetite at all. And they lifted up their eyes and they looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices and... Uh, balm, myrrh, and they were on their way uh, to carry them to Egypt. So all of this is happening on a main main trade route between uh, Arabia and down into Egypt. So Judah gets the bright idea and says to his brothers, Well, listen, why kill him with our own hands when we can just send him off someplace where he gets forgotten? We make a few bucks off the thing, too. So he said to his brother, "What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let somebody else do our dirty work for us. Let's sell him uh, to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers, listen to him." And so he said, "This is just a, is an effective way to bring his dreams to an end is to sell him into slavery on into Egypt. I mean, does God make the wrath of man?" the wickedness of man, to praise him or not. Joseph's going to get a free ride by the Ishmaelite traders into Egypt where God wants them to be all along. And these guys think, you know, they're ruining God's plan for Joseph's uh, life. But God wins in all of these things. And so, so they listen. They're happy to do it this way. The Midianite traders passed by, and so the brothers... Uh, pulled Joseph up out of the pit, lifted him out of it, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and then the Ishmaelites then took Joseph on cue to Egypt. (laughs) Just absolutely uh, fabulous, exactly where God wanted him uh, to be. And then Reuben returned. He's been absent while all of this was going on. Probably had gone, somebody has to take care of, of the herds while you're planning your brother's death so he he breaks off and he's probably looking after the herds he comes back and finds out that they've sold joseph to a bunch of ishmaelites taken him to egypt where he's obviously going to be sold as as a slave and so when he discovers joseph's not in the pit he tore his clothes, that's an act of, of mourning and grief. He returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more, and where shall I go? And, and so here is here's Reuben, he's the oldest brother, kind of the head of, of the family with the boys, and he's going to have to answer to dad. And... Th- with what his brothers have done here they can't go running after the Ishmaelites and say wait a second that was a terrible mistake we'll give you 25 shekels to get him back those guys are not going to give Joseph up and they got a lot of pretty tough characters that travel with these caravans he's lost he's already gone now we're gonna have did you guys hey brothers did you ever think that we're not gonna be out here you know, in Dothan forever, we're gonna to have to return home and explain this thing to Dad. By the way, we lost a son out there. What in the world are we gonna tell him? And I'm gonna to have to tell him because I'm the oldest son. So they come up with this plan. They took Joseph's tunic and they killed a kid of the goats. Couldn't get away with this today, because they'd tell what kind of blood it was immediately. And and so they killed a kid of the goats, they dipped this brightly colored jacket of his into the blood and then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said we found this Uh, do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not and so pretty casual you know in, in their approach and, and all uh, hey do you recognize this at all we don't i i don't know look may look kind of like that brightly colored coat you gave your son and all but we hardly noticed uh does it look does this look like the one you know it's all covered with with blood and all now and uh, and they want to give the idea that he got Eaten by a wild animal, and, uh, and the blood all over because of it, and so they they give it uh, to him uh, in that in that way, and and Joseph, I mean Jacob, he recognized it, and he said, "It's my son's tunic," and then he comes to the conclusion they wanted him to come to: a wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. For 22 years, they're going to let their dad live with the lie that their son, his, his son, his favorite son, is dead. And he's not dead at all. That, that is just so unspeakably cruel to do to a parent. And the, the only way it can be crueler is what they're doing to Jacob here, and that is Jacob has to feel... I'm the one that sent him out to Shechem and then on to Dothan. If I had never sent him, he would still be alive today. And for 22 years, he's going to feel responsible for the death of his son. And these guys are so hard and so cold-hearted that they don't mind doing this to their dad, who is innocent in all this, in order to cover uh, themselves in the situation. And Jacob is so uh, you know, really torn up over the situation that this is what's represented by it. He then tears his clothes in mourning, puts sackcloth on his waist, and then he mourned for his son many days. And then notice this. You talk about chutzpah. Talk about nerve. Then all of his sons and all his daughters, I mean these eleven boys with the daughters, they arose to try and comfort him. How can you you live with yourself? And he said, For I will go down into the grave to my son in mourning. And thus his father wept for him. And he said, I will never recover from this. And and they were willing uh, to have it be so in his life. Now the Midianites... Had had sold him in uh, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So he is now sold in Egypt. Joseph is he's sold to a very very powerful man in Pharaoh's government, and a man who oversees kind of the prison system in in Egypt. Then then we come to chapter 38 here, in in all of this, and when you come to chapter 38, it just seems like a Uh, really it's like the writer of the Bible finished chapter 37 and uh, went off and had a cup of coffee and came back and just started writing something that doesn't have anything to do with the chronology as it deals with really a very sordid event having to do with Judah Who's, uh, it was his idea to sell Joseph into the slavery uh, and, and all. And you look and say, how in the world does this fit into the chronology? But it does fit in. And there's a reason for it. The, chapter 38 and kind of the, just the shameful events of chapter 38 are listed for us at this point in order to help us realize why Joseph had to go into Egypt in order to prepare a place for his family for their survival in order that they would not become absorbed by the Canaanite people and the Canaanite nations and tribes around them because in chapter 38 we're going to see that the the descendants of of Jacob they are they it, the family is unraveling and if God did not rise up and find a uh, womb, so to speak, in Egypt to protect them from being absorbed by everyone else, it would have readily been so. So here is this thing where Joseph now goes into Egypt. He's being prepared for, for God's call on his life to protect not only this nation and this people, but his plan of salvation. And then now here in chapter 38 we see why it was necessary because these people, th- these people are falling apart. And it came to pass at that time that Judah, that's the one that, uh, you know, took in... One, it was his idea to sell Joseph, you know, for, uh, for 20 pieces of silver and, and the whole thing and then deceived his father into thinking that Joseph was dead. He now leaves home, uh, departed from his brothers, and he visited a certain Adullamite whose name uh, was Hira. And Judah saw there uh, a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. Is this guy crazy? I mean, this is how, kind of how it is. He marries a Canaanite. Remember how Abraham was so careful with his servant to make sure that his son Isaac did not marry a Canaanite and sent back to his family in order to find, you know, someone with godly character to marry his son. And then Isaac does the same thing for Jacob. And I mean, there was real concern for the bloodline, that it would not be absorbed by the pagan nations. Judah doesn't care about any of this stuff at all. He wants a Canaanite woman. He doesn't care about spiritual things. doesn't care about the promises of God for the family. He wants a Canaanite woman. He's going to marry a Canaanite woman. And so that's exactly uh, what, what he does and, and just a, he just couldn't be more wrong in, in what he does here. There's, there isn't a good, good spiritual sobriety in the family, and God knows it. And so he cons- she conceived his wife and bore a son and called his name Ur. Easy to remember. And uh, she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. She conceived again, yet again, bore a son, and called his name Sheila. That's weird. That's kind of like a girl named Sue or a boy named Sue kind of a thing, isn't it? But In that culture, it was a male name. Here, it's more of a female name. And he was at Chezib when she bore him. And then Judah took a wife for Ur. So there's quite a bit of times going by. His oldest son has now grown into adult life. And... Uh, he now marries, and, and the wife that he takes, uh, her name is Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight uh, of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Now, this guy's got to be pretty wicked, because God's putting up with quite a bit, you know, just in the general population of, of things. And so, the wickedness isn't named, but the Lord g- goes in and, and takes him... Uh, out. And, she, and Judah then uh, said to Onan, his next oldest son, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. Uh, this was called the Leverite uh, marriage in those days. And the Leverite marriage was if you had an older brother and he married a woman and he died before they had a son in order for his name to continue and and be a part uh, of uh, continuing on in, in human history then the next blood relative closest blood relative would then marry the widow and take her as wife and then uh, would be involved with her intimately until she conceived a son. That son would not be considered his son, but his older brother's son in order that his name would live on. And so it was very, very important for that culture that a man's name uh, did not uh, die out. And we're less concerned about those things. I certainly am. I had two daughters and uh, absolutely fine with that. So we didn't keep trying until we had a boy. And so you end up with... Ma Kettle and and, uh, Ma Kyle here until you know 18 girls and then you finally get the boy kind of a deal and everyone's dead so you can do that that's fine there's a lot of choices and freedom in the United States and so I'm not putting it down backpedaling pretty good (laughs) you know I'm just saying it's right for me but that was the way that the work the deal worked and so to raise up, the whole purpose in verse 8 is to raise up an heir for your brother. And, but Onan knew that the heir, the male child that would come out of this union, uh, wouldn't be his. And, uh, and so he would kind of have to expend the resources to raise the boy. And then the boy, because the boy was the son of the oldest son, uh, that younger boy would then become the heir of the whole family, which would have normally fallen to, to Onan if there wasn't a a boy that was born in in the situation. So he's got a lot of things going through his mind here. And so it came to pass, when he went into his brother's wife, that so they became sexually intimate, that he omitted on the ground, uh, lest he should give an heir to his brother. Now let me say, this has nothing to do with birth control. Uh, there, uh, through history people have looked at this and said any use of birth control because God's going to smite him dead and notice in verse 10 and the thing which he did displeased the Lord and therefore he killed him also so God doesn't kill people for using birth control uh, by whatever ancient or, or you know uh, uh, modern method that, that they would use it does not affect the, uh, a child uh, a, a fertilized egg and, uh, and so Uh, This is what he he does here. And and he doesn't want her to conceive, doesn't want her to have a son because of all of these other factors on things. And God gets upset with it because he disobeys his father. But what he should have done is he should have either done it or not do it. Not do it halfway. He should have said, I am not going to keep this uh, Leverite Marriage, liberate marriage on things. And so I'm not going to do it, and whatever happens, that's going to happen. But what he does is he goes into a woman who is only making herself available to him for the sole reason of producing a child. And he sexually satisfies himself in the situation, and then when it comes to that part that is the reason that she's involved, he goes ahead and sabotages the whole thing. And so he's used her very, very selfishly on things that displease God and and God takes and and kills uh, him. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house. Go back home and, and, and live with your family till my son Sheila is grown. He wasn't old enough to marry her and, and become a part of the process here. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted. So he went through a period of grieving and, and, he's, uh, and he is coming through that grieving period. And he went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite, And so they, they're tending sheep and all, and, and so they, they head up and, and, uh, uh, to, to meet with the crew that's doing it. And it was told Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And so she took off her widow's garments. So for a lot of years, she's not out, uh, she's not a manhunter or anything. She's not looking for a man. She's still wearing her, her widow's garments all these years, waiting for Sheila to be old enough now to raise up an heir, to do the right thing, for Judah to allow it to happen. And uh, and so uh, it hasn't happened. So she takes off these garments. She covers herself with a veil, wrapped herself. This is the dress of... A of a harlot in those days and she sat in an open place which is on the way to Timna and for she saw she saw that Sheila was grown and was not given to him as a wife and then when Judah saw her sitting by the side of the road he thought she was a harlot because uh, she had covered her face and that was what would distinguish a, a harlot and so she takes on uh, that particular appearance now The interesting thing to understand about what's happening here is that in the Canaanite culture at that time, when there was the time of the sheep shearing, uh, it was like that's kind of like the harvest for herdsmen. And so, all right, it's been a good year or whatever. What they would do then. is in order to, as kind of a religious practice, the Canaanite religious practice, in order to assure fertility for the flock for the next year and a, and a very, uh, you know, kind of a good harvest of fur and, and wool and that kind of a thing, at the during the time of shearing of the sheep, you would go where these uh, Canaanite temp, uh, temple uh, priestesses and prostitutes were you would then engage in uh, sexual fornication with them as, as a, a religious ritual I, I, I trust a, a, a very impure man came up with this religion uh, you, you, know, you figure who can anyway so <laughs> obviously doesn't come from God so that's what he's doing and, and he's just again being absorbed by by the culture, the mores and the morals of the culture. So this he looks at her figures that she's just one of these Canaanite uh, temple prostitutes and decides he's going to go uh, into her. He doesn't recognize her. She's veiled. And so he, then he turned to her, by the way, and said, please let me come into you. So he propositions her. He did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, "What you, will you give me that you may come into me? And so they negotiate a price. And she said, uh, he said, I will give a young goat from the flock. That's the, that's the offer. And so she said, uh, will you give me a pledge until you send it? You've come here, you offer a young goat, and, and uh, you don't have a young goat. And so what can you give me as kind of a surety that you're going to bring a goat to me in, in payment, you know, once all of this is through. And he said, what ple- pledge shall I give you? You name what what you desire and she said your signet and cord and your staff that's in your hand and then he gave them to her now uh, the a signet and a cord a cord was something for around your neck and your signet that was a family seal that was a very distinct that that seal didn't belong to anybody else in all of canaan that was unique to his family Uh, The staff would have also been very uh, uh, uniquely carved with the crest of the family or the name of the family. I mean, they they would have strongly identified um, the owner of these objects. In other words, it would be, in terms of identification, it would be like today someone leaving his driver's license and a credit card with her. Very easy to find out who in the world this person uh, was. He went into her. And she conceived by him, and so she arose and uh, she uh, went away, laid aside her veil, put on the garments of her widowhood, and so she goes back to her her other uh, life there on on things and uh, and and, and uh, takes continues all of that. The harlotry side of things is over, and then Judah he sent a young goat by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand so he wanted to give the goat to her so he could get his seal and and his in his staff back but they he couldn't find her and then he asked the men of the area and said where's the harlot that was openly by the roadside and they said there's no harlot that hangs out around here in this place and so he returned to Judah and said I can't find her and also the men of the place said there's no harlot in that place And then Judah said, let her take them for herself. She can have those, lest we be shamed, because I've done what I can. I sent her the young goat, and you haven't found her. I tried to do what was right here. And it came to pass about three months later that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot, and furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So word comes back to Judah now, that your daughter-in-law, who's been waiting for Sheila, is now pregnant, and she's pregnant by harlotry. Notice uh, Judah's reaction: "Bring her out and let her be burned." <laughs> Not the mildest, uh, you know, kind of uh, reaction to the whole uh, thing. And so here, here he is. He he looks at the the deal and and. He's, he's incensed. My daughter-in-law. This is shame on the family. She's been a harlot. She's pregnant out of wedlock. Here, and the whole thing. Let her come out and be burned. And that's the sentence that he casts on on, on her. Now, if you're going to burn people alive in a public setting, that's going to gather quite a crowd. So probably from all the families and everything, everyone comes together to see uh, all, all of this. And, uh, and it's it's so hypocritical of Judah here in this thing because just three months earlier he was engaged with a harlot with her but he doesn't know it and yet when he hears that she's been engaged in harlotry now we're going to kill her and isn't it amazing how terrible our sin looks on other people amazing how we can overlook things in our lives and then just be unbelievably hard on someone else who falls in sin she doesn't really do it she does it deliberately and we'll get to that in a moment, but falls in sin in the same area that we do, and we're going to really hammer them on that. You see it over and over again in the body of Christ, where there is this overreaction even to uh, giving a consequence to a sin. Whenever there's that overreaction, a lot of times there's underlying factors in a person's life, and that person is troubled by the same sin. So he says, let's go ahead and, and uh, burn her. And She's brought out now to be burned, and she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man to whom these things belong, I'm with child. These, the, this is the man that, that conceived with, with me on things. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And I mean, everyone can look at them and they know that they belong to Judah. And so Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. She was more righteous than him in that he engaged in sex with her for his own sexual satisfaction. She engaged in sex with him in order to raise up an heir to her dead husband, which the law of the land allowed for that time. So there are two completely different kind of categories of people here in terms of, of how things would be judged. But to his credit, he admits, I'm, I have done the greater wrong here in all of this. And it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were, bo- were in her womb, And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and because whichever child was first born was super important to them, uh, the midwife grabs that hand, puts a scarlet thread on it, and uh, so we know this one came out first, even if it was only a hand. And, and then uh, it happened, he drew his hand back into mom, and, the, and his brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, how did you break through this breach be upon you? And therefore his name was called Perez, which means breakthrough. And then afterward his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Amazing, the birth of these two twins. And you know what's one of the most amazing things about the whole chapter? Is that God is going to bring His Son into the world, not through the lineage of Joseph. I mean, while Joseph is going to handle temptation in a completely different way, we'll see next week, Judah handles it in the worldly way on things. And you would think, boy, God is going to bring, He's going to bring the Messiah into the world through Joseph for sure, but he doesn't. He brings Messiah, brings Jesus into the world through Judah and through Paris, one of these, one of these two twins uh, here, Zera, and, and, and that's how he comes into the world. Sometimes people say, you know, there's no grace in the Old Testament. There's unbelievable grace in the Old uh, Testament. God's a willingness to identify with sinners. If the worship team had come forward...